Well, my earlier uh, lectures uh, for this group on the uh, uh, on the destiny of civilization was all about the, the transition from finance capitalism to industrial capitalism. Mm. There's no fight anymore. Finance has taken over. American industrial corporations are run by financial managers, not by not by industrial managers. Money's made by financial engineering, not by industrial engineering. Uh, if you are a uh, look at the reason that we're having an oil uh, shortage problem in uh, the world right now. Uh, if you're an oil company, you can do two things. Uh, you're making a lot of profits on your oil. Now, either you can use these profits to uh, drill more oil wells and increase production, or you can buy your own stock and just pay them all out as dividends. Well, if, if you're a financial manager, uh, you're paid by how much you push up the stock price. So you don't invest. Invest is long term. Uh, finance lives in the short term. They're going to use their profits to buy up their own stock, to push up the price, and to pay dividends so that other people will say they can make money by buying the stock. Money is made financially, not by industrial investment anymore. So already uh, the finance capitalism has re replaced uh, it, uh, industrial capitalism. People, industrial capitalism was seeming to be an, evolving into socialism in the 19th century until World War One. But that's not what happened. It didn't evolve in, into socialism. It evolved into finance capitalism, and socialism can only come from rejecting this whole dynamic of, uh, uh, of evolution of capitalism into a financial form. So just as uh, in antiquity, the uh, democracy evolved into, aristoc into oligarchy and aristocracy, industrial capitalism evolved into finance capitalism, and uh, now uh, the uh, uh, feudal, <laughs> neo-feudalism. We're going back. We've rolled back the whole prog progress and are uh, reverting to the whole spirit of Western civilization, which is feudalism and impoverishment and debt bondage. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I'd like to add a couple of things, both to the questions that Professor Ping put and also to a couple of the comments, particularly from my editor of my latest book, Barry Gills. So I'd like to, uh, yes, yes. to, uh, to, to respond to that uh, very quickly. So number one, uh, I think that, uh, you know, you pointed out, Professor Ping, that um, uh, uh, whereas, you know, in classical Marxism, we think of capitalism as um, involving um, capital and labor, uh, now we, Michael and I are talking about a slightly different matter, which is the relation between industrial and financial capital. And you're absolutely right. But I would like to uh, dwell a little bit more on that. Number one, I would say that Marx never discounted the role of landlords and other forms of rentier income for him. He analyzed that and he also understood the possibility of um, the, uh, I mean, in that sense, he did take a lot of leaves out of Ricardo's book. Ricardo viscerally hated rentier uh, uh, capital and, and, and so also uh, 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 Marx took that on. Um, so, so that, that, that's, and, and, and Marx only, if Marx perhaps de-emphasized the possibility that 
has actually materialized of the do- dominance of financialized accumulation, MM dash form of accumulation. It's because he expected that actually over the course of its development, capitalism would take this old form of usurious capital and subordinate it to its own requirements, changing it into a form of banking, which would serve capitalist accumulation by providing long-term finance, patient capital that was capable of expanding productive, like the kind of financial system that we had before the the current financialization in most Western countries, the kind of financial system we still have in countries like China and so on. So that's my first point. The second point is that in the course of this, what has happened in Western countries, of course, is that as far as working people are concerned, they are not just exploited as workers, but they are also squeezed as debtors. This is the key thing. More and more people are not just employed. You know, it's not just a question of employment that faces workers. It's also the question of debt. The overwhelming majority of households are indebted. And that's that's one of the key relationships that we have to uh, also bear in mind. And I also want to say one other thing, which is that and this joins up with some, this, your second point, which was about hegemony. I've argued in geopolitical economy, and I've sustained this argument in my newest book as well, uh, Cap- uh, uh, Capitalism, Coronavirus and War, a Geopolitical Economy. And that is very simply that the idea of hegemony is bonkers. And it emerges entirely from the ambitions of American policymakers and businessmen in the early 20th century to repeat what they think Britain had accomplished in the previous century, which is that Britain had somehow managed to to rule over the whole world by imposing, particularly by imposing sterling on the rest of the world. Now, the problem with that is that already that that had at least two sources of instability. Number one, the increasing organization of the working class at home, which would make the kind of discipline required by the gold standard impossible. And number two, the challenge of the contender powers like Germany, like uh, United States and other countries, but particularly in this case, Germany, which was already destabilizing the sterling system. If you, there are many sources that show this. So the you know and plus the United States forgot one other thing. The only reason the British could run the sterling system is because they sat on top of a vast empire. And the surpluses of this empire, particularly British India, which was the largest chunk of that empire and among the most exploited, they drew surpluses from British India and uh, 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 exported it as capital exports to the rest of the world and not in some generic sense, but particularly to white settler colonies, to the United States and to Europe. So in that sense, the second industrial revolution, industrialization was critically financed by these sorts of capital exports on the UK's part in particular. So, so, but without such an empire, you cannot have dollar hegemony and the Americans have never properly succeeded. Before 1971, they did not succeed. They clearly failed because within a few years of other currencies become, becoming convertible, the United States already didn't have enough gold to back it. And after breaking the gold backing, 
US, the US dollar's world role has rested, as Michael and I have argued in our paper, Beyond Dollar Creditocracy, on a series of financializations. That is to say, the blowing up of asset bubbles, which brings dollars into the US, thereby counteracting the downward pressure which American deficits put on the dollar. So this is, this is what it's been. So hegemony is really a, I, uh, it is a ambition of the United States dressed up in theoretical drag, theoretical clothes by uh, important uh, exponents of uh, American interests, such as Charles Kindleberger, and then following them, a whole lot of other people. So hegemony is, in fact, we, if you look at the historical development of capitalism, you don't see hegemony. What you see is increasing multipolarity, or what I would now call pluripolarity. That is the increasing spread of productive power, which makes the domination of any single power impossible. What we are witnessing right now is the United States uh, attempts to hang on by with its fingernails on what remains of its power. Very quickly, one other thing. Uh, the productive, de- two other things, productive debility of the United States in the case, in the present situation. They don't actually have, they are unable to manufacture the weapons that they need to send to Ukraine. That's why the weapons supply. So the manufacturing debility is showing up even in the core sector, which the United States has kept alive through massive subsidies. And one final point, because I know for Barry, this is a subject of huge, huge discussions. But I would just say one thing. Of course, I'm completely an environmentalist. I think that we have to stop climate change. We have to stop pollution. We have to stop biodiversity being declining, etc. These are existential challenges for all of us on this planet. I totally agree. I just want to say that sometimes this is articulated as degrowth. But if you look at it, Precisely in those decades when world growth actually slowed down, particularly in Western countries, growth slowed down. These are the decades during which every indicator of environmental destruction has been climbing steeply so that it's not so much growth. It's the kind of growth we have. And we can have growth, that is to say, a betterment of the human condition, including material betterment by a better pattern of growth with more shared resources with more uh, 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 with a more socialistic pattern of growth i think we can we can pursue that as well so sorry to go on for a long time but yeah um, I, I thought i would say those things thank you so much both i have uh, a third question which uh, i can uh, ask now but you don't don't need to answer me now, maybe before we listen, uh, after we listen to others, but my third question is, do you think both the next immediate crisis will be the crisis from within in the U.S., for instance, slower or even less growth and the high inflation, etc., mainly in the domestic problem? Or the problem between U.S. and others, especially China. So this is a sort of third uh, question I have had in mind. But now I like to perhaps should I should invite. I already saw some questions. Let me invite some of the questions. Uh, one I saw someone has repeated this question twice. One yes for. Professor Hudson, how did the World War 
one. How did the World War One stop the progress of taxing the land rent? How did the democratization of the property ownership financialize the real estate in the 20th century? This is a question for Michael. I've described yes. that、uh, in my book,、uh, Killing the Host. Uh, England uh, had taken the lead in trying to get rid of the landlord class because it had the most vicious, worst, and stupidest landlord class uh, 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 in the West. And by 1909, finally,、uh, the uh, uh, democratic reform,、uh, industrial capitalism,、uh, realized that in order to make、uh, Capitalism in England, competitive. You had to remove the House of Lords from making British policy, and so it was industrial capitalism that urged democracy and、uh, to shift、uh, political power to the House of Commons, away from the House of Lords,、uh, because that way you could stop the House of Lords from saying, "Don't tax the land." Give us the power. Well, finally, the House of Commons passed the Revenue Act that was going to be uh, uh, to tax the land. Well, the House of Lords then said, "Ha ha! We have the same power that the Roman Senate can had.、Uh, democracy government can propose laws, but we get to veto them. And whoever has the veto power gets to control, and we can veto the House of Lords vetoed it. There was a constitutional crisis in、uh, England." And、uh, they passed.、Uh, they changed the constitution so that the、uh, House of Lords could never again、uh, veto a revenue bill put out by the House of Commons. Well, by that to all by that time, England had decided、uh, we don't we want we don't want to、uh, any other country to rival our industry. Let's go to war with Germany. They immediately prepared their war for Germany uh, uh, against uh, Germany, and uh, the whole, uh, very soon they uh, brought on、uh, World War One. And by the time they、uh, emerged from the World War One, the story that I've described in superimperialism,、uh, England, uh, America, England. Uh, agreed to pay its war debts to the United States for the arms that England bought to fight Germany before、uh, America entered the war, and that、uh, bankrupted England. And but so much that then England and the Allies said, "Well, we'll make Germany pay reparations."、Uh, the whole—it、uh, was World War One that changed, shifted. The whole center of world power away from England and the Empire to the United States, and in the United States, there had been a revolution in economic thought.、Uh, the anti-classical economists,、uh, people like、uh, John Bates Clark, said there's no such thing as economic rent. The landlord、uh, provides a protect productive act. All this rent that the landlord gets, he deserves by deciding who to rent the land to, uh, and. Uh, If you look at the、uh, GDP statistics in the United States today,、uh, most of the American GDP takes the form of landlord rent and Wall Street interest. Uh, uh, the Wall Street is、uh, considered to be productive by charging interest, and most banks and credit card companies make more money on penalties and low late fees for credit cards than they make on for.、Uh, 
on interest. And all of this is contribute to GDP because they say charging late fees is the, uh, the productive activity of banks is deciding who to lend money to to extract the late fees uh, uh, from. So we had a whole uh, revolution in the concept of uh, how economies get rich uh, and stemming from the United States. The idea was that economies get rich by finance, not by industry. Uh, and the, uh, once you got rid of the landlord class uh, and democratized home ownership and property ownership, how is somebody going to buy a house? Well, nobody had enough money to go buy a house. You buy it on mortgage. So uh, as democratization of land meant that families could, uh, everybody could buy a house by taking a mortgage. And the land rent that used to be paid to the landlord was now paid to the banks as mortgage interest. And all of a sudden, the banks replaced the landlord class uh, and uh, essentially ended up as the main rentier uh, interest, that is, the main rent recipient interest or rent extracting interest. So uh, you had finance replace the landlords, and finance also became the mother of trusts, the mother of monopolies. Finance would, uh, the Wall Street would buy uh, all of the copper companies and merge them together, take all of the oil companies, merge them together, uh, all of the steel companies merge them into the steel trust, make a monopoly, and take their uh, their return not as a profits but as super rents, as monopoly rents so over and above. So we had a rentier uh, economy replacing the uh, idealized uh, industrial economy after World War One. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. After listening to this, to your this uh, response, so uh, answering the question, maybe I should uh, change a little bit of my third question. Instead of either or, which one is more serious and more immediate? Maybe I should ask like this. Do you think the U.S. key problem, even only from economic and financial point of view, is that on the one hand, the bubble is, uh, and will always be here in the U.S. on the one hand, and on the other hand, the so-called reindustrialization will be actually impossible. And do you think that actually is or can be? Yes, yes, please. Uh, you're treating deindustrialization as a problem. You're treating poverty as a problem. Poverty is a solution. Deindustrialization is the solution. Why do you think it's a problem? If you're a billionaire, it's not a problem. You're getting rich with deindustrialization. So what is the problem to you is the solution to the uh, the oligarchy. Uh, uh, now, you, it may be a solution with internal contradictions, uh, but it's still uh, the poverty and the bubble is the solution of the wealthy class to use the financial system not to support public spending into the economy to rebuild the infrastructure, but simply to buy stocks and bonds and especially uh, junk junk bonds, junk, uh, yes. package mortgages, so that the uh, the 1%, the 10% of the wealthiest Americans that own 72% of the stock and most of the bonds won't lose money on their investments, or at least they can now sell out and uh, uh, sell out the stocks, sell out the bonds, and begin buying up the land. 
So you have the uh, the former head of uh, uh, the computer co uh, awful computer company. Uh, uh, I'm blocking out the name. Uh, the, the, becoming the wealthiest uh, uh, land landholder or the largest landholder in the United States. The uh, the financial class is bailing out. They're buying uh, real estate. And uh, since uh, President Obama's uh, support of the uh, uh, the junk mortgage crisis uh, and the massive eviction of millions of American families, ho uh, home ownership in the United States has now gone down from uh, 69% to 61%, and it's plunging rapidly because the the, hold, the financial class is now saying the financial game's over. Uh, we've made the problem. We've sold our stocks and bonds to the Federal Reserve. Now let's yes. begin buying up uh, all the houses for sale and uh, turn America away from a right. owner-occupied uh, housing into rental housing. The financial class is now reverted and is making itself back into the old-fashioned landlord class uh, in the United States. Rents are soaring here. Now, that's impoverishing the people. If you have to pay more in rent and more in debt, you're not going to have uh, uh, enough money to buy the goods and services you don't produce. Uh, but America is not producing goods and services, so that doesn't matter. If you can't afford to buy goods and services, that means you can't buy Chinese imports so much, but you, you, you can pay the, uh, uh, the new landlords of the house you're renting. You can pay uh, your bankers and you can pay the finance, insurance and real estate sector, the fire sector. That's what the modern American economy is. The fire sector, not the industrial sector. I mean, I think, uh, Michael, your, your comments are excellent as a sort of ironic statement, but we also have to look at the real effects. I mean, if you consider the following, then I think it becomes possible to understand what's really happening, particularly in the United States and the UK at this point. Because you were asking about whether these economies and these countries will somehow implode or will they be destroyed by their confrontation with China? Well, I think the signs of implosion have been mounting for a very long time. Because if you think about it, the only the, the key political relationship that stabilized the relationship between capitalism and working people in the post Second World War period was the social contract that underlay the Keynesian welfare states, etc. There was some kind of a moderation in the level of capitalist exploitation and plunder, etc., and expansion of working class wages and demand. Uh, and, and these things made a material difference. And what neoliberalism meant was a reversal of this. Uh, and since the onset of neoliberalism, we have had increasing concern about the quality of liberal democracy. Because on the one hand, the West goes to wars by waving the flag of democracy and human rights, whereas, of course, the reversal of the social contract, the adoption of neoliberal policies, financialization, deindustrialization, right. all of these things have been excoriating democracy from within. People are writing books with titles such as, in fact, I think Barry was one of them. He early on, uh, he edited a book called Low Intensity Democracy. But more recently, for example, there is a very good book called The Hollowing Out of Western Democracies, which shows that, you know, the, that, that the old idea that democracy somehow links leaders and, and people, yeah, people. It's, it's gone. There is no linkage no, anymore. No, and, no and, more. and so what you get are these populist uh, so, so essentially both parties, like, you know, essentially 
right-wing parties move further to the right and left-wing parties, instead of challenging them by moving to the left, also move to the right. Oh, so the entire yes, yes. political spectrum has yes, moved yes. to the right. And in this context, ordinary people and their concerns have no representation. So what that does is it allows charlatans like Trump to be elected, like Johnson to be elected. Trump made a whole big deal about free trade and how he was going to oppose it and so on. Johnson, on you know, he, he attacked Brexit, whereas in fact, Britain, the, what ails the British people was not so much the relation with the EU, where the British always had a, you know, a pick and choose approach. You know, we will buy into this and not buy into that. So Britain's problems were more or less completely homegrown. Hmm. It's not part of the Eurozone. It's not part of the social chapter. All of these things is a homegrown problem. But then he managed to blame the EU, which also has a lot of problems, but nevertheless, and he got elected. Now look at what has happened to him. I mean, a, a complete charlatan who has not a, there is not a principal bone in his body and he is now gone. But look at the rogues gallery that has yeah, gathered yeah. to succeed him. They are just as bad. So in this context, you are already seeing just today in the Financial Times, I am reading that the possibility that the Roe versus Wade and other restrictions on the powers of the federal government in the United States may very well presage the disintegration of the United States. There are many deep fault lines in the United States. The old Civil War fault line is one of them. In the UK, you already have the possibility, the, the Brexit referendum has already brought forward the possibility of the unification of Ireland and uh, uh, the reunification of Ireland. And it has brought forward the possibility of um, the secession of Scotland. So that means, and, and if, if these two countries are gone, what does it, where does that leave England and Wales? And who is, what are the, the Labour Party under Keir Starmer is, has not a chance in hell of addressing the genuine concerns of ordinary people. So you're back to the age of the Jacquerie. You know, people people have no yes. choice but to protest in an incoherent way because there is not a single political force. So if in this situation, you are actually sitting on tinder boxes, both in a social sense and in the national sense that I described earlier, that there are many nations embedded within these two neoliberal financialized countries. So the possibility of implosion is definitely there. And I haven't even said a single thing about the confrontation with China, where the Americans are losing the technological war, the trade war, the currency war, and increasingly the weapons technology war. So what more do we need to say? Mm. Yes, thank you. I saw one of the questions here, maybe not the first, but the question uh, goes like this question. Professor Desai, as well as Professor Hudson, what if China becomes a new landlord money or money lord of the world in the future? Is there a way or any way to prevent that? Isn't getting free lunch everybody's, everybody's dream becoming a, a parasite? Basically, is human civilization stormed to fight the same war again and again? This is the question. 
then one of the greatest dangers to the people of the world in present period in the problem of how to deal with a U.S. in a serious decline, i.e. how to limit the damage it may attempt to inflict externally as it desperately seeks to defeat, defend its power position while internally being in ever deeper social, economic, and political crisis. Please comment on the significance of the rise of the left movement and the parties in Latin America. That's that's the question, long question. Thank you. In In breaking away from the United States, in creating a multipolar world order, uh, it is necessary to create a whole, uh, alternative set of institutions that will include an international bank, not like the International Monetary Fund mm-hmm. is an arm of the U.S., but as a, a mutual bank. Uh, and uh, this bank uh, will arrange payments among different countries to be made in their own currencies. Uh, and there's a basic principle that no uh, of international finance uh, and internet that should be an international law. No country should be obliged to impoverish itself in order to pay foreign bondholders. That means no country should have to impose, take the IMF advice to create austerity, to fight the labor unions, uh, simply in order to pay, uh, the dollar, uh, bondholders. Now in creating, uh, this, uh, crisis that will create this institution will probably arise uh, this summer because as uh, oil prices go up and as food prices go up, uh, the global South, Latin America and Africa will have a choice. Uh, They're going to have to pay uh, much more for their food, for their energy. Uh, What are they going to do? Are they going to starve or will they say, we can't afford to buy food uh, we're going to pay the bondholders uh, so that the Americans uh, won't lose any money. Well, uh, Russia uh, will say, well, we are, and China will say, we are willing That's to science. export to you enough to keep you solvent. Well, you can buy our uh, energy, uh, Russian energy. You can buy Russian crops. However, uh, we know that you don't have the money to pay. We are not going to uh, lend you money that uh, you're simply going to now have enough that you can get by and pay your foreign debts, you're going to have to choose. Do you want to be part of the dollar uh, area or do you want to be part of the new multilateral area? Well, by creating this new multilateral area and a, a bank that will be funded by a combination of domestic currencies put in and uh, something like what Keynes called the Bancor, uh, paper gold, uh, that uh, the bank will simply create uh, to fund, uh, this will mean that uh, no country in the future will have to behave to any country the way it's behaved toward the United States. Uh-huh. It, won't have, it won't have to impoverish its economy to pay financial debts to China right. or any other country uh, as a principle of the international law that has enabled uh, the global south and uh, China, and Russia, and India, and Iran to uh, create this alternative uh, economic order. So there will be a whole different constitution 
of uh, international finance, international trade, international payments, and international law to the United States, so that uh, the the kind of of unipolarity of financial domination of the world economy can no longer exist, just as uh, there cannot be a financialization of domestic economies in China, Russia, uh, or the global South countries. So the uh, the breaking of uh, becoming independent from uh, the dollarized zone will uh, create a much fairer international system. So this kind of financial imperialism cannot recur on the part of any country. Yes. Yeah, and uh, yes, if, yes, I may, yes, if, if I may add to that, so to the first question about if China becomes the new land money lord of the world, <laughs> yes. I just say that, you know, first of all, well, there are several things I should say. Number one, as I've said, uh, this kind of expectation arises from theories of hegemony, which say, you know, mm-hmm. we had Italian city-states hegemony, Dutch hegemony, British hegemony. Mm-hmm. Now we have American hegemony. Who else will we have next? This mm-hmm. is the wrong theory. So what we have witnessed is the increasing multipolarity of the world so that progressively it has become harder and harder for any country to truly dominate. And even British hegemony was never quite what people said, thought it was. It was, it rested on a vast empire. Yes. But that empire was, is today no longer possible and no country can recreate it. The record of American military failures, Korea, it had to accept the partition of Korea. It was defeated in Vietnam. Practically everywhere it has gone, it has failed to actually have a victory. It has destroyed a lot, but it has failed to have a victory. It just goes to show that unless you are dealing with tiny countries like Grenada or Panama, the Americans cannot have a victory, which means no country really. And so that's the first thing. No country can have such domination. Secondly, China emerges from a very different tradition. China is part of the anti-imperialist tradition. And that means something. It's not just in the head. There are certain impulses that are bred into, that are hardwired into the Chinese, the personality of the Chinese party state. And I don't think that that is going to lend itself very well to exercising hegemony uh, or, or domination over the rest of the world. And the third point I'd like to make is that, you know, in people say uh, always, you know, along with this question of whether China will be the next hegemon, which is the wrong question. They also say, well, will the Chinese currency replace the dollar? And I would just add uh, to add to some of the things that uh, Michael has already said. Already at the end of the Second World War, the world was ready to have a multilaterally agreed currency, which would be no, look, look nothing like the sterling system. It would look nothing like the dollar system that we got or non-system that we got instead. It was going to be something based on the mutual agreement, at least of the systemically important countries. And I think that is something like what we are going to get, because quite frankly, if China allowed the type of internationalization of its currency that the Americans have allowed, Chinese industry would go kaput. Chinese industry would not exist because it would uh, involve transforming the Chinese uh, financial sector. And China cannot afford that if it is going to retain the legitimacy 
it enjoys among ordinary Chinese people if the party state is going to retain that legitimacy. So that expectation is the wrong one. And finally, even if there were some residual possibility that China is going to become some kind of a big bully on the block, the fact is other countries, you know, people have talked a lot about how China has been a good partner to many other third world countries, particularly, you know, it's a good trade partner, good investment partner, etc. But these countries... Take, take Sri Lanka right now. These countries have to do not just one thing, namely partner with China. They have to do two things. Number one, yes, partner with China, but number two, also learn from China. What has, what is China doing? Expanding its productive economy, etc. You have to learn from China in order to be, in order to make the most of your partnership with China. Right now, what is ailing Sri Lanka is that the fact is the, and by the way, the, it's a, uh, financial links with China are heavily exaggerated. Most of Sri Lanka's debt is owed, overwhelming majority of Sri Lanka's debt is owed to the Western countries. But nevertheless, Sri Lanka ran a welfare state without looking after the productive base. You cannot do that. You, If you are going to have a redis- good redistributive economy, you have to have a good productive economy and you can learn from China how to do that. So, in that sense, I would say that if more and more countries began learning from China, began to say, okay, how do we learn from China to expand our productive economy in an ecologically sustainable fashion, then that would be good. I agree with Barry that uh, U.S. in serious decline is a huge problem. And I can only say that there are at least three agents that can do something to manage it. First and foremost are the people of the United States itself. And I think that they have to organize in order to replace the existing broken political system with a better one, with a socialist one, to put not to put too fine a point on it, because capitalism in its present capitalism has run its course. It cannot take a better form. In order to create a better productive economy, a rust belt free economy in the United States, you're going to need some kind of socialism. And it's time to build it now. Number two, the second agent are the allies of the United States. They have to stop kowtowing to the United States. The Germans have to say, Basta, you are destroying our economy. We're not going to do what you want us to do. So do all the rest of the Europeans and the Japanese. And I think that this is also going to only come with down pressure from below. And then obviously, finally, uh, I would say that uh, uh, some kind, the rest of the world has to exercise some kind of a restraint because at the end of the day, <coughs> the United States is the only country in the world to have ever used nuclear weapons. It's the only country in the world that used nuclear weapons without any reason for doing so, with no legitimate reason to do so, with no threat facing it. This is a, 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 a ruling class that is uh, kind of out of control and we have to do something. Finally, I will say that on the matter of the left movements and parties in Latin America, I cannot say more uh, about, you know, I cannot praise them enough. I think they need, you know, Lula has to get back into office. But also, like all the other, like, like I said about all the other countries, like I said about Sri Lanka, they are, Latin America is benefiting a great deal from China's involvement in the continent, but they really must look into how to create a better productive basis. One of the biggest threats that Latin America faces is to become a sort of 
primary product exporter for the industrial economies of the world, which today primarily means China. And it has to do better than that. Of course, it can do that. I'm not saying no, but it can do better than that. And that requires political organization and political, um, what's the word for it? Uh, yeah, p- political organization and planning, basically. So I'll end there. I have to say one thing in response to that. Uh, how uh, can any country increase the productive uh, economy? Uh, in order for Latin America or Africa to uh, spend money uh, on their productive economy, they cannot do that and pay the dollarized debts to the West. They are incompatible. Uh, there has to be a debt cancellation. And I think China should uh, take the lead in this. And uh, all my discussion before of how the world was before 2,000 years ago, as I mentioned, every Babylonian ruler would begin by canceling the debts. Every every Near Eastern ruler would cancel the debts. Uh, In Japan, there were revolutions to cancel the debts. All throughout Asia, there were periodic debt cancellation uh, when it was necessary to cancel the debts in order to provide uh, the economy with enough money to go forward. Uh, Any uh, political movement or economic movement to rebuild industry has to be done with a clean slate. That means not paying the dollar debts. It's over. The the loans that the International Monetary Fund and the bondholders have given to the global south have not been loans to develop. They are odious debts. They were loans, let's say it, to keep the client oligarchy in power. They were to uh, support the currencies so the oligarchy could move their money out of the currencies because uh, a free market meant there are no capital controls on the uh, on the amount by which uh, wealthy oligarchies can take out uh, their money. Most of the dollar debts uh, of uh, Argentina and Brazil uh, are owed to Brazilians and Argentinians. The Americans won't touch them because they know that uh, these countries can't pay. But uh, the uh, the oligarchs in Brazil say, well, we run the central bank. We run the government. Of course, we'll pay the dollar debts because we're paying to ourselves on our offshore uh, offshore uh, uh, dollar accounts. Uh, as a matter of fact, I worked for Scudder Stevens putting in place in 1990 the first uh, third world sovereign debt fund. And uh, we could only sell uh, our uh, Argentinian and Brazilian debts to, in Argentina and Brazil. So uh, you, you have to get rid of the oligarchy. Uh, you talk about uh, socialist reform in America. Uh, that's not possible. It's unconstitutional. It's uh, the Supreme Court. We can't even have uh, global uh, environmental laws against global warming. It's unconstitutional. It's unconstitutional for women to have abortions in the United States. It's unconstitutional to uh, let uh, anyone run for president who cannot raise money on Wall Street. Uh, the, the political campaigns are run by campaign contributors. Uh, this, uh, the, uh, it is unconstitutional to avoid uh, the United States 
going down, uh, polarizing and going down and down and like a frog in the uh, water being boiled and boiled until it slowly dies. Uh, there's a slow crash in the United States. There is no uh, opportunity to make a third party in the United States that's unconstitutional, according to state uh, state constitutions. There, uh, there is it's not possible for the government, the federal government, to have any power, which you would need under any socialist uh, regime, because the Constitution was written by slave owners that wanted states' rights, the ability of minorities to prevent any attempt to free the slaves initially, uh, and then after slavery entered, any attempt uh, to provide a pro-labor, pro-environmental, pro-democratic policy, unconstitutional. So you cannot expect the United States to reform itself uh, only to undergo a slow crash. And uh, as Marx uh, said, uh, the end of capitalism is not going to be a pretty sight. And uh, if the United States uh, loses its uh, its power, that's not going to be uh, a political uh, a pretty sight. Uh, I I worked uh, for many years with the Hudson Institute, a national security institute. Uh, I uh, often was brought to the National War College. Uh, I met with, uh, uh, with with the generals. Uh, you say the atomic bomb was not necessary. Of course, it was necessary. It was uh, worth bombing Japan so that the Russians would not uh, uh, move their, have an influence uh, over Japan. It was necessary to show the world, we are willing to blow up your country if you don't do what we want. It was necessary to atom bomb Japan so MacArthur could come in, uh, hire the Yakuza, the gangs, to murder the socialists, to uh, to uh, jail the socialists, and to create uh, the right-wing dictatorship uh, uh, of a client oligarchy that uh, Japan has today, uh, uh, in today's society. Uh, the, uh, the military people, uh, and most of all, the political people, not so much the military, but the State Department people said, it is necessary for us to not only to be the, have the ability to use the atom bomb, but actually to use it if there's any threat to uh, our power or the power of the client oligarchies that we back in the Near East and Latin America and others. Uh, I've met these people. They want to use the atomic bomb personally. They talk about using it. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could? How can we create? These are mentally sick people. Uh, and yet they are, in, they are the people that uh, President Biden has appointed in charge of the State Department. And uh, you're dealing with, with madmen. And you, uh, you, you, both of you have said, uh, talked about Donald Trump, uh, being a charlatan. Uh, he was elected president because he was the lesser evil. The danger was Hillary Clinton, who did want to use the atom bomb. If she were in power, she has, uh, is the most militarist, uh, of all. That's one of the reasons that people voted for Trump instead of her. He was the lesser evil. Thank you. Now, we don't have much time left. Thank you both uh, so much for this uh, uh, discussions and uh, answering the questions. Now, I have to come to those questions by Chinese audience. There are several already. Uh, I'm sorry I did not even see them uh, because they put into uh, my uh, WeChat. Uh, I have to read them in uh, Chinese, but you definitely can easily listen to the still in the same channel. I think English channel. 
the interpreters will translate them into uh, English. Uh, the, I read several questions uh, together, then you can organize your answering. The first question is a question to Professor Hudson. So you mentioned that we need to build a strong government to fight against the oligarchy. But what should we make of the fact that uh, in the in the state and cap? Uh, what should we make of the fact that the state capitalism assess Lenin in state and revolution? Because the state capitalism, as according to Lenin, that will inevitably form bureaucratic monopoly capitalism, who are also like a kind of oligarchy. And the second question is also uh, a question to Professor Hudson. So you have repeatedly stated that debt cancellation is necessary. However, for different groups within a country, some people have access through debt, while others have nothing. They don't have debt either. Is it unfair to those who are not in debt if there is a debt cancellation? How to balance this imbalance caused by a clean slate? Well, if somebody's not in debt, it's because they're fortunate enough to uh, not to have to go into debt. Uh, this was uh, every single ancient society uh, had the same problem. And for thousands of years, the idea was uh, you have to let everybody have a free start. And uh, you want to avoid uh, people having been driven into debt. It's very nice that many people are not driven into debt, uh, but you can't say we are going to uh, make uh, more and more people fall deeper and deeper into debt uh, and uh, die early and uh, uh, be impoverished just so uh, uh, you won't have to uh, uh, be on the same level as them. Uh, that's uh, completely uh, arrogant. Uh, the, the objective is to protect the weak and the poor. That's what every ancient religion said uh, was the job of the ruler. Uh, you had the justice goddesses uh, in, uh, uh, in Babylonia, uh, and Sumer saying, uh, you have to protect uh, the poor. If someone that you want is in debt, they're poor and you want to uh, get rid of it. So of course uh, you have to. Uh, regarding what Lenin said in State and Revolution, uh, well, uh, of course you don't want uh, uh, the kind of Stalinist uh, bureaucracy uh, to develop. And uh, uh, China was able so far to avoid that. Uh, uh, all you, uh, in every country, where you uh, prevented a bureaucracy taking place, it's required a revolution by force. It's required a population to uh, take action to preserve uh, uh, a government that actually serves them. I think uh, in America, Benjamin Franklin said, we are a republic, you are a republic if you can keep it. Uh, the question is, uh, uh, China uh, is uh, the effectively uh, a democracy because uh, it has the Communist Party doing what a democracy should do, promoting the prosperity of the people. Uh, it's necessary for the people uh, to be vigilant. Uh, uh, that's uh, the challenge of any, any country. We don't know how uh, Russia is going to uh, solve the problem of the kleptocrats that the neoliberals have put in place. Uh, we don't know how other countries will solve this, uh, but it has uh, an, a knowledge of history, including ancient history and 
where Western civilization went wrong uh, will certainly give you a guide in as to what to avoid. There's another another question also about debt, about how to uh, the clean slate for uh for for the global south. So this question is also to Professor Hudson. How do you think the global south can start the process of of a clean slate? Because many developing countries they are relying on dollar debt for their international uh, and even domestic spending. Once they start to refuse to pay back their debt, won't they be sanctioned by the U.S.? Well, the answer is, of course, the United States is going to treat any country that uh, withdraws from its financial system uh, in the same way it treated Russia and China. Uh, the uh, That is going to force these countries to choose. Do they want to be part of the U.S. order or part of the emerging uh, Eurasian uh, order? And uh, uh, they, uh, if they remain in the U.S. order, it's certain that uh, they they will going to end up in debt bondage. Uh, the only hope they have is to move with uh, China and Russia, and then they can say to the United States, "Well, we're not going to pay the debts, but uh, we certainly would like to uh, export some of our, our our materials to you and to buy from you." Uh, are you going, if you put sanctions against us, you're going to be punishing your own exporters. If you, what do we buy from the United States? The only thing we buy from the United States are food, uh, and, uh, arms. We're not going to buy your arms because we're not going to go to war with anyone. Certainly not with your arms. Uh, we're going to try to feed ourselves and, uh, Russia can sort of feed us. We don't need the United States. Um, uh, and, uh, the question is, what about, uh, America's satellites, like Europe, uh, the uh, Latin America and Africa can say, well, we'd like to buy your European exports. Uh, if you want to have uh, uh, American sanctions against us, then you will kill your own export industries and you will be uh, condemning your own industrial uh, base uh, to unemployment. And you'll end up a, a rust belt, just like the United States the Midwest has become. Uh, do you want that or do you want to have uh, multipolar world, and why don't you Europeans and uh, other American satellites join the Eurasian New World Order? That's basically the diplomatic uh, strategy that uh, is logical to evolve. How do do you make any comments on the BRICS or BRICS recently? Uh, BRICS plus two as an emergent counter-hegemonic force in the global political economy. Could you make any comments, both of you? My comment is simply, yes. I'll let Radhika elaborate. Sure, thanks, Michael. Um, I think that, you know, in some senses, um, you know, the rhetoric of the new Cold War sometimes can be questioned and sometimes there are interesting parallels. So this is a case in which there are interesting parallels because you go to go back to the old Cold War, the original Cold War. What you had was the communist bloc confronting the capitalist bloc, but also a very large number of third world countries leaning distinctly leftwards 
and leaning distinctly towards the communist bloc, which together constituted a sort of, you know, various groupings like the non-aligned movement, the group of 77, they together created UNCTAD. And in the end, in the 1970s, they campaigned for a new international economic order. And I think in in different circumstances, that agenda is back on the table. Michael has already talked about the reform of international economic governance, beginning with, uh, you know, which includes rather, I should say, the reform of the international monetary system, roughly along the lines that Keynes recommended uh, uh, at the end of the Second World War, but which the United States did not allow to be realized. Uh, This matter was also, by the way, very interestingly raised by the governor of the People's Bank of China, hot on the heels of the 2008 financial crisis, at which point also lots of people were beginning to say that there's something deeply wrong with the dollar system. And again, that's something that I've argued in my geopolitical economy, Michael and I argued more recently. So beginning with that, but also going to other forms, like what is the form that trade must take? If you go back to the original Havana Charter, you see in that the principles of an international trade system that is designed for the mutual benefit of all countries, not for some uh, uh, some productively powerful countries to destroy others. This has happened, uh, you know, uh, enough times on, on a world scale that we do not need that to happen. I think pe- countries need to create sustainable and uh, uh, how can you say, uh, yeah, sustainable in both in, in a, in a long-term sense, as well as in an ecological sense, productive foundations for their needs of their own people. It's not being provincial at all. In fact, that allows countries to relate to one another on a mutually beneficial basis. So to make a long story short, I would say that the rise of the BRICS, the rise of uh, other uh, alternative institutions that are centered around China, whether it's the uh, uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank or the RESEP and so on, these are all all the building blocks of a new form of international economic governance, which moves away from, very critically, moves away from the kind of imperialism that we have had in the past. Because the thing is, if you think about it, the high point of imperialism was 1914. But partly because the United States was able to get the cooperation of the major capitalist powers, this system kind of was extended into the post-war period. It is no longer sustainable. Most of the Europeans recognize it, which is partly why they have, at least until early this year, they have managed to create good relations with China and Russia. And they know that they have to do that. But anyway, my point is simply that this is the kind of system we need to to bring into existence, which is for mutual benefit and not for the domination. NATO, the IMF, the World Bank, etc., all of these were the arms of an of a of an imperial system which was trying to prolong its life even though it was sort of its time was up